Welcome to the Recovering from Religion podcast. We are a vibrant international community for those who have questions or doubts about their faith. Without further ado, allow me to introduce our guest, Dr. Dale Ray. Believe it or not, and I'm sure you've never heard this before, but he is the founder and the president of Recovering from Religion. He has been a psychologist for over 30 years and is the author of four books, including The God Virus, How Religion Injects Our Lives, or Infects, <laughs> Infects Our Lives and Culture, and Sex and God, How Religion Distorts Sexuality. Dr. Ray has been a student of religion most of his life and holds a master's degree in religion as well as a bachelor's degree in sociology and anthropology. And he's got a doctorate of psychology. So, Dr. Ray, I am so glad to have you back on the show today. Welcome. Well, I'm glad to be back myself. Uh, I like you more and more every day, Eric. You said I was a psychologist for 30 years. Um, that, that means I'm eight years younger than I thought I was. So thank you. I appreciate that compliment. <laughs> Do I need to update the bio to say 38 years? Is that what? Uh, don't worry about it. You know, after about 30 years, who, who gives a shit? It's, uh, I could say he's been a psychologist together. since I was eight years old. <laughs> that that's probably a, a better way to put it. <laughs> All right. Well, I am I'm happy to be here, and I'm looking forward to making this talk. I'm actually going to be doing this talk uh, or a, a, another version of it um, later this week at the um, um, conference on religious trauma. So uh, th tonight I'm going to be looking mainly at folks, you know, non-psychology kinds of people, but I'll talk the same thing uh, next Friday. So if you happen to want to hear a lot of good stuff, you might want to come to the Conference on Religious Trauma, and, um, and you'll learn a lot, and I'll speak on Friday. So I'm going to share and my that screen. conference um, starts tomorrow, correct? It does, yeah, tomorrow night. Yeah. And it's uh, basically two hours every night through Oh gosh, is it Saturday? And uh, yeah, I think it's Saturday. It's got a really, it's got a stellar kind of um, lineup. So, all right, I'm gonna share my screen here, and I'm always a klutz at this, so bear with me a little bit. Some of what you're gonna be hearing tonight is based upon my book, Sex and God. A little bit of will come from the God virus, but there's also quite a bit of, of new material or, or some ideas that don't appear in either of the books. I want to also emphasize this is not a substitute for therapy. If you've got concerns about your sexuality, your sexual expression, sexual desire, any of those things, you, and, and it's concerning to you, then find a therapist. And of course, we think you can find the best therapist through the Secular Therapy Project. So I'm going to begin with talking a little bit about uh, the basics. And these may or may not be things you're familiar with. I really, I really think a lot of people are not familiar with some of the concepts uh, we're going to be discussing today. But first of all, brain development and sexual development go hand in hand. You can't separate one from the other. And so as people are going through childhood and pre-adolescence and puberty and early adulthood, so are their brains. And those brains are being influenced by hormonal stuff. 
And there's actually developmental phases where, you know, the body tries to coordinate things. It tries to, let's, you know, it's, you're 11 years old, it's time to start dumping this hormone in. You're 14 years old, it's time to start this dumping this hormone in. And sometimes those, those kinds of things can be interrupted or disrupted. And that unfortunately happens when religion gets involved because religion can really screw up people's sexuality uh, by, well, in a lot of ways that we'll kind of explore a little bit here tonight. But it's important to keep in mind that we're always, no matter what, our brains and our bodies are connected and that the developmental phases that we went through, and most of us are well past um, adolescence, we went through those phases being influenced by things. Uh, this is a picture of a tree that I uh, took on my property some years back. This tree was very young when I first moved here. And not long after I moved into my current home, another tree fell on that tree and, and pushed it over. And as a result, that the tree that was pushed down started trying to correct and grow back straight. So you can see the place where it was hit by the other tree. And not long after that, um, a few years after that, I, I noticed it was curving back up towards, towards the light because it's natural inclination. It's habit. If you're a gardener, you know what I'm talking about. It's habit is to go straight. Unfortunately, it can't go straight. So it is distorted and it is permanently distorted. That tree will never be straight. And that's what religion does to our brains. When, when religion comes in and different, and not just religion, other things can interrupt our biology too. But there's a clear relationship between the way our biology is supposed to go and the way religion will interfere with that biology. And that biology can be interfered with through conceptual frameworks that were taught because your brain is connected to, to your adrenal gland. Your brain is connected to your uh, hippocampus, your brain is uh, connected to the amygdala, and all these things are connected to your sex and sexuality. In fact, you can't hardly be sexual without your amygdala, without your hippocampus. So these things are important, and as you go through life, they can be influenced by the thinking process that your uh, cerebral cortex throws down into these other places. For example, if you are taught to be scared to death of hell if you masturbate, that might have some hormonal influences on your on your development as a 9, 10, 11, 12 year old whose hormones are just starting to flow. I want to just go back and emphasize that when you're when you're being raised in a religious environment, it really almost does not matter what environment. There are very few religions that are sex positive. You're being exposed to notions of virginity, notions of purity. Uh, you're being told that masturbation, which is a perfectly normal behavior, is wrong and you shouldn't do it and you should be afraid of going to hell, that sort of stuff. You're being exposed to notions of the gender binary and that that's the only way God created people. And if you're any different or any of your friends are different, then it's something wrong with you. And all these things have direct impact on our brains because we're we're imbibing these and these then create emotions and the emotions then get expressed through our hormones that can then Im impact our brains. 
sexual repression, celibacy, the whole concept of sin, all these things are being thrown at you. We actually have no way to know how much damage these ideas can can have, but we do know they have they create damage. So what we see is that people who go through uh, the more the more strict the religious training is, the more uh, impact it is on the developmental stages. Now we all know <laughs> if you've been a parent, you know because you watch your kids go through developmental stages. We even have names for some of these. We've got the terrible twos. If you're a parent of a young child, you know kids go through the terrible twos. Well, there's a reason why we call it the terrible twos because most of the kids about two years old have certain hormones and certain behavioral and certain cognitive things going on in their brain that makes them behave that way. If you have dogs, you know that dogs go through cycles. I've got a four-year-old dog. She is just now just like within the last six months, got out of the puppy phase. And until she gets out of the puppy phase, she's going to be chewing everything. She's going to be running away. She's not going to be as obedient as I would like her to be. So even with animals, we can see there are developmental phases that that you can go through or that people go through and dogs go through. <laughs> so when you were when you were in religion, when others were out flirting and dating, you may have been in a Bible study. When others were learning what porn looked like and, and what they wanted to masturbate to, you were probably in an anti-masturbation group. When others were experimenting with sexual positions with a partner, you were in church learning the missionary position was the only godly position, period. And it had to be within marriage on top of that. When others were out plant, visiting Planned Parenthood and get some birth control, you were being taught that condoms don't work and birth control is murder. When others were taking age-appropriate sex ed, and there is such a thing, the Unitarian Church does it. It's one of the few churches on the planet that actually has po sex positive ed. You were learning about purity culture and about male ownership of women and girls and uh, chastity and sex only in marriage and that sort of stuff. When others were hanging out in LGBT friendly groups, you were being taught that, uh, you know, you would condemn the, the gays and uh, it was evil and it was a choice and all that sort of uh, bullshit. So you can see all these things were happening to you while your friends or your peers were out doing something different. Now you may not you may not quite see that because we're a lot of times we're raised in a similar cultural environment. But if you compare your adolescence, your young adulthood, to the adolescence and young adulthood of someone born in Sweden with no religion even in the environment hardly that can help you see the difference between the way you were being influenced and the way they were being influenced. And even if your parents were totally atheist and totally secular, totally free thinkers, totally sex positive, chances are you got some of this stuff in your head, whether you liked it or not. It's like a fish swimming in polluted water. You can't get away from it. So we're gonna talk about reclaiming our sexuality. And I'm gonna begin by saying, this is the only body you will ever have. And it's the only life you will ever have. So you need to learn to enjoy your body and your life. And you're going to have to do it without religious sexual ideas if you want to have a full life. The most important thing we're going to talk about here today is what we'll, um, I, I'm going to characterize as automatic thinking a little bit later. But I, I, always, I always think this is a funny comic. Watch what you think you may be listening and all too often, we are, we are talking to ourselves and we're giving ourselves 
uh, we're replaying things that are actually harmful to us or irrational or illogical. I mean, if you were raised in religion and you, and you took many years to get out of religion, how many years did you, did you go to church and go to Sunday school and read your Bible thinking somebody really could get raised from the dead? Or that there were 500 people walking around Jerusalem after the resurrection. I mean, how many years did you actually believe that shit? And I'm not saying I didn't believe some of it too. I'm not here to condemn anybody else. I was just as gullible at earlier parts in my life. So we are always talking to ourselves and we're programming and reprogramming ourselves through our self-talk. We call this automatic thinking oftentimes. And one of the reasons I wrote, I, we wrote those questions about um, for the survey tonight was to start raising awareness of how much automatic thinking is going on in your head. All of us have a lot of automatic thinking. And unfortunately, most of that automatic thinking came from very early in our lives, long before we had the critical thinking skills to evaluate. For, you know, if you feel uncomfortable about some, some aspects of your sexuality that are, that, are, that are probably normal and acceptable things, then it probably comes from the automatic thinking you got as a child. Um, being nervous about, about your body, being critical about your body. And we hear this from other areas. I mean, sure, I'm, I'm sure you've all, we've all said something like, I'm, I'm stupid or I, I don't like people with tattoos or I can't believe she wore that today. Um, you know, I, I don't, or you might have thought about, oh, somebody else thinks I'm not smart. I mean, these are all automatic thinking. There, you don't you don't sit there and think, I need to come up with a really bad thing to tell myself today. I need to I need to really find a way to put myself down and show how stupid I am, how dumb I am, how bad tattooed people are, how stupid the other people are. You don't sit there and think that way. The thoughts just pop into your mind. So an automatic thought with respect to how we are sexually is, well, that's just the way I am. And you hear people say that a lot about themselves. But the rational way to think about it would be, well, that was the way I was indoctrinated and it was the way I was trained, but I can change my indoctrination. I can change my training. And if that wasn't true, then we would never grow. We would never learn anything new. We're always learning something new and we're re-indoctrinating ourselves all the time. So there's, there's uh, no mystery to the fact that we are re-indoctrinating ourselves. And we often, oftentimes many people say, when I left religion, I felt a big relief. Uh, but I also felt like I was totally naive. I, I didn't understand the world because I thought the world operated the way the Baptists taught me or the Catholics taught me. And now I realize I don't know much. I got to go out and learn again. So you're basically re-indoctrinating, re-educating yourself. If you want to change your thinking, you're going to have to engage in some techniques that challenge automatic thinking. And I'm not here to do that tonight. <laughs> this subject is gigantic, ginormous. There's just no way for us to explore it all in our single hour. But if you want to learn the absolutely beautiful skills that are available out there, you might go find a therapist that can teach you cognitive behavioral therapy. They can teach you dialectical behavior 
therapy. They can teach you mindfulness or meditation. And there are other scientifically validated methods that you can use. You don't have to be a victim to the automatic thinking that came out of your childhood. Uh, I just saw this. I thought this was a great quote on Twitter uh, a month or two ago. Yeah, go ahead and read it, would you, Eric? You bet. Uh, Reexamining your beliefs is like being born again. You get to experience all the wonderful things in life again and feel as if you are experiencing them for the first time because you're finally experiencing them with your true self. That is a very beautiful sentiment. Yeah. Um, I've heard you say something similar, I think, even <laughs> in, uh, in other, t- other conversations we've had. Am I correct? I, <laughs> I don't think I said it this succinctly if I said it at all. <laughs> I thought it, it captured a lot of what I hear from people, that uh, the freedom to rediscover who they are outside of religion it's just phenomenal. I've had so many people tell me once I got out of religion, I felt like a different person. And so being born again, I, I love it because it's a Christian methodol, a Christian symbol that just jumps out at you. But it's a, as an atheist, I was born again when I got rid of the, the religion. All right. I'm going to talk about some hangups and a main two. I'm sure there's more than this, but there's two hangups that I find most uh, common among people. Uh, among all humans. And that's the hang up about my own body. I'm ashamed. I don't want to expose my own body. I don't, I'm, I'm critical of my own body. And of course, hang ups about other people's bodies. They're too skinny. They're too fat. They're, you know, unattractive. I don't like, I don't like the way they dress. You know, that shirt doesn't fit their body. And you know, there's all, you all know it. You've heard it a hundred times, but more important, you've heard it a thousand times inside your own head. Because we're full of automatic thinking that leads to the hangups that we have. I mean, where did somebody learn to be ashamed of their body? I know people who've been basically nudist their whole life. They loved going without clothes from the time they were babies, and now they belong to a nudist facility. Why do somebody else scare to death to even put on a bathing suit, let alone be, be nude? And it's almost always related to religious early childhood training. So there's challenges. To, uh, I want to challenge our automatic thinking, and I want to, you to become aware of just how many times do you judge your own body? I, I have a little experiment I do with myself. It's just kind of a fun little thing to go it's, make it my goal that day to count how many times I come up with a self-critical thought. And literally carry a piece of paper and a pencil around and just make a hash mark every time you come up with a self-critical thought. I've done that off and on for probably 30 years as I'm trying to become more aware of my automatic thinking. Because automatic thinking is so subtle, you don't even know it's happening. It ha- it's, But it's happening constantly. It's like a full dialogue with your worst enemy in your head. Not everybody does this. But um, the vast majority of people do it. And it's debilitating. It slows you down. It prevents you from learning. You know, if you're sitting around saying, I'm too stupid, you're probably not reading the book you're trying to absorb for the college course you're taking or the high school course or the new professional course you're taking. Every time you repeat one of those automatic things, it interferes emotionally with your ability to learn. 
and let's, let's just be clear. Learning is an emotional experience. If you're not emotionally engaged in the content, you're probably not learning it. If you're emotionally engaged with the content of your self-criticism, that also means you're not paying attention to the things that you do like about your body, about the way your body gives you pleasure and that sort of stuff. When people have this automatic thinking stuff, they'll tell themselves things like, I, I can't masturbate. I can't enjoy my body. I'm too guilty about, about my body to enjoy my masturbation. But before I move beyond that slide, I want to say congratulations to this group uh, because the survey showed most of you are not feeling guilty about masturbating. So that is a surprise. I was actually expecting to see far more people in the category of feeling guilty. So we have an exceptional group here, I think. Obviously, much smarter people because they're part of RFR. <laughs> uh, Dr. Ray, would you like me to read the numbers out for folks? Yeah, please do. That would be good. Yeah. All right. The uh, first question uh, was, do you feel guilty about masturbating? And 19% um, said yes. And 63% said no. 4% um, said masturbating doesn't interest me. And 13% said I'm not sure. Excellent. Good. So they, yeah, this is an exceptional group. <laughs> I've done many, I've done this kind of talk many times and I don't generally get that level of response. So another way to challenge automatic thinking is to think about it as mind readings. Many times we try to mind read, we, I call it mind reading. So do the cognitive behavioral therapists. And that is, I, I think that they think I'm too fat. I'm too skinny. I'm unattractive. I'm too tall. I'm too short. So what you're doing is you're saying, Joe Blow over there across the room is looking at me. He must be thinking X, Y, or Z. Now, the, the fact is, that's actually crazy thinking. You have no idea what that person is thinking. They could be looking at you thinking about what they're going to make for supper tonight, and you would never know it. So we have a real tendency, and again, I think it's important to become aware of these things, we have a tendency to put thoughts into other people's minds. And when you do that, you're distracting yourself from experiencing the current real world and enjoying what, what this life is about at this moment. Automatic thinking is just playing old tapes in your head. And who in the hell still got a tape recorder? Uh, I don't have one anymore, but I have a lot of tapes and they're sitting back there in a room behind my office gathering dust and probably going to fall apart someday. But I don't have a tape recorder to play them. I have to go pay a ridiculous amount on Amazon to get one because nobody uses them anymore. And you're using it though, you know, in your head, you've got an old tape recorder that's going off every day. And these automatic thoughts are just over and over and over again. I want to stop here just a second. I, if I was, if I was speaking to a live audience, I would ask the audience, what is your most common automatic thought? What comes into your mind the most often? Maybe what comes around your mind when you're around, you know, someone else or in a situation like at work where you're around a person you don't like? Well, you and can use uh, Karen myself as guinea pigs if you oh, like okay. jumping off. Right. Me. Well, okay. What's, a, what's an automatic thought that you, you can pull up? that you've had in the last day or two about somebody else. 
Oh, about somebody else. Uh, or about yourself. I don't care. Yeah, a lot of the talk that goes on in my head is about myself. Um, okay. Uh, I, it's a lot of, uh, what is it called? Imposter syndrome? Ah, uh, right. Yeah. Right. Uh, like, um, so I, what, I would, what would those thoughts be? Like, I'm not nearly qualified enough to do X. And okay. so I shouldn't, why should I even bother doing it? Or what if somebody found out that I'm not qualified to do X? Okay. Kara, do you have any? I do. Yeah. And this is terrible to admit for a, a host on a show, but I, I often have this thought, oh my goodness, I'm sure I just said something terribly awkward <laughs> all day long. <laughs> so hopefully that's one of those automatic thoughts and, and not a reflection of reality, but. <laughs> so I'm sure everybody who's listening to me right now could come up with some of those. Now I want you to take what Kara or Eric told, told us just now and ask the question, how much energy did it take away from them to have that thought? What could they have been doing more productively with that mental energy? Could you have been reading a book? Could you have been learning something new? Uh, could you have been making a new friend? You know, I, I could have been focusing on what I was there to do, you know, not, uh, I could have been saving some adrenaline <laughs> coursing yeah. through my body. <laughs> I, I wouldn't be shaking. Like my hands wouldn't be shaking or my body wouldn't be shaking. Right. Going right. through that stress. Yep. And every time you do it, I'm sorry, go ahead, Kara. Well, no, I was just going to say, and I could actually be listening to what other people are saying instead of yeah. having a conversation with myself about what it, I'm saying. That's brilliant. That is, yeah. you're absolutely right, Kara. You could be listening and understanding. Now, what's this all got to do with sex? <laughs> well, if you're too concerned about your own body, if you've got this dialogue going about, oh, he or she can't like me or they can't like me because of my body X, Y, or Z, then you're not going to be listening to them. You're not going to be experiencing them. You're not going to be asking for what you need. You're not going to be trying to find out what they need and want. So this, this automatic thinking is actually devastating to good sexual relationships, including the one you have with yourself. So that's why I started off this talk talking about automatic thinking. It's probably the most, it underlies everything cognitive behavioral science is about. It underlies all that uh, dialectical behavioral uh, therapy is all about. It helps you identify your own stumbling blocks. And uh, I don't know if you guys, I'm, I'm old enough to remember the comic strip Pogo where he makes a famous statement. He says, we have met the enemy and they is us. And that unfortunately is too true in, in our sexual relationships. We are our own worst enemy. So here's some, I wanna challenge some beliefs about sex and sexuality. And I, I'm, this is a really broad stroke here. Like I said, this is a ginormous kind of topic so i'm not even coming close to hitting them all but frankly there's no one way to be sexual or to express your sexuality there's a thousand ways a million ways to express it and yet religion oftentimes tells us no there's only one way our sex drive our sex drive can vary dramatically from one day to the next one year to the next i am 70 years old 
I'm telling you, I don't have a sex drive I had at 30. I'm not ashamed of that. I'm just having to come to some grips. I really wish I could have sex eight or nine times a day like I could when I was 30 or 40. (laughs) But I can't do that anymore. And I have to come to grips with that. That's just a part of the life cycle. I also have to come to grips that other people may not want sex as much as I do, or I may not want as much sex as they do. But we're we're two people trying to negotiate a sexual relationship, for example. And it's just like anything else. Uh, I mean, I watch, and this has nothing, <laughs> there's no sexual innuendo here, but I watch our, our chat line agents, for example, and I watch them smoothly negotiate and switch off between helping clients. And they're really good at it, but they've learned how to negotiate with each other Hey, I got to go. Is anybody able to take on this call? Are anybody able to take on this chat? It's simple negotiation and, and it's teamwork. And that's kind of what we're talking about here. Applied to sex. How do we negotiate our needs and their needs so that everybody gets more of what they need? Another thing is no two people will ever match sexually perfectly. My sex drive may be high one day, my partner's low or vice versa. My sexual interest may be totally different. And I can't expect anyone to fully, fully satisfy all my sexual interests and desires and to match my energy. I mean, a robot might, but humans are not robots. However, it's a hell of a lot more gratifying to have someone you're involved with, you care about, you've got a relationship with that understands your needs and voluntarily and with enthusiasm wants to help meet those and, and you in return. So what I'm saying is you need to learn to ask and negotiate for your mutual needs. If you're in a, if you're in a partnered relationship of any kind, I will just say everything I just said, you didn't learn this in religion. So you may have to work a little harder to catch up. That person who's exactly your same age in Sweden probably is not, did not miss the developmental stages. I mean, you may not have been allowed to date. You were in the courting. You were allowed to court if you were, you know, a Pentecostal or something. And so you missed an entire segment of your life, four, five, six, seven years of your life, where you would have been learning how to interact with people of different identities, different gender identities. And you miss that part. You can't go back and change it, but you can acknowledge, I missed that. I'm going to go have to figure it out and, and, you know, make my own life, make my own conclusions about who I am as a sexual person. Dr. Rain. Uh, Yeah. We may go back uh, slightly. What you had mentioned um, negotiating and, uh, compromising or you know, negotiating what you want with your sexual partner. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I had it in my head, but I totally forgot exactly what you said. What does that even look like? Like what would. Good question. I'm going to actually come talk about that a little bit later. Okay. I, great. I, I, well, I have Daryl's tips on this stuff. So yeah, I we're. I want Daryl's tip. <laughs> Okay. Yes. You may you can tune out then <laughs> take your <laughs> take your earbuds out or whatever. <laughs> uh yeah, I, I thanks for asking, but I will come back. I'm going to actually give you very specific things that you can do. 
Uh, I do want to orient, uh, throw out just some concepts. You may have never heard of these, but there's some ideas that I found very interesting and very useful in understanding sexual orient, se- or sexuality. One of them is called the Sociosexual Orientation Index. You can just Google that and come up. There's actually a test you can take. Uh, there's also five five components of personality in humans. And one of those components uh, seems to correlate a lot with uh, sexual adventurousness, and that's called openness to new experience and curiosity. It also correlates, by the way, with non-religiosity. Uh, the more, the more, um, the lower you score in this particular area, the less curious you are, the more religious you probably are, because you know, religion isn't exactly all about exploring and new ideas. And then the notion of the Kinsey scale. That, when I first was introduced to this clear back in the 70s, I thought, wow, that's, that's phenomenal. In other words, uh, what Kinsey is saying is we're not all hetero or homosexual. We're somewhere in between. Everybody is somewhere in between. Now, you may be on extremes, maybe a six or a seven, but uh, another person might be a one. But there's a lot of people that are in the middle. It's almost like a bell curve. And what Kinsey said was it's the, the gender binary and the sexual, you know, dimorphism that we find in, I mean, the sexual um, spectrum is, it's much more nuanced, much more shades of color, not gray, shades of color between people. And last is we change through our life cycle. What was interesting to me at 21 years of age sexually is no longer interesting to me. I'm interested in something different at age 40, or I may have changed and opened my my interests in a whole different area. I mean, how many of you to just use hobbies? How many of you were passionate about some kind of game or some kind of hobby 10 years ago? And now that's the last thing you wanna do. You do not wanna play Dungeons and Dragons. You had enough of that 20 years ago. So now you're on to some other game. That's, humans are adventurous. We get satiated easily and we wanna move on to new things. And that's the same thing for sex. We're constantly, uh, some people, not everybody, some people are very sexually adventurous. Some people are not adventurous at all. And there's nothing wrong with either one of those. What's wrong is when one side judges the other side. Just because I'm not adventurous or liking to, you know, learn how to fuck on the chandeliers doesn't mean I'm not an interesting person or that I don't like sex. It's just, I don't like chandelier sex. On the, on the other side, somebody who's, who's not as adventurous may look at somebody who's very adventurous and say, well, they're promiscuous and they're, you know, they're wrong. They're, they're, you know, creating all sorts of problems for themselves because they're, they have too much sex. And that's all automatic thinking. It's all automatic thinking from the two perspectives. And that's interesting because when you realize your perspective is here and you're judging somebody else who's on this side and they're over here judging you on this side. We're all wrong. (laughs) Let's not judge people. Let's just accept who we are. And what we may find is in loosening up and stopping judging people, we won't be pushing people into the edges. We'll be bringing them more into uh, the real world of maybe they'll explore a little bit more or maybe you know, they'll, 
there'll be, I mean, there's lots of things that can happen when you don't feel pushed into a corner. So here's some things that I learned. You're going to get a little bit about Daryl's life here. Not much, but a little bit. I'll save that to the very end of our talk today. I uh, found that people of all identifications love sex and that uh, uh, tr trying out the highest, highest uh, setting on your vibrator can uh, send you over the edge. I also have had girlfriends who really liked the high setting on the vibrator, but I didn't know that. It took me a while to explore that. I, the, one of the myths I got from religion was, in this case, a female-identified people uh, don't 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 like sex. Women don't like sex. Um, that was beat into my head from very early on in my in my training as a religious person. Um, once I got divorced after 17 years of marriage, I found out, oh, hell, that's not right. Women like sex better than I do sometimes. And that was a shock to me. I had no idea anybody could like sex more than I did. So uh, that was quite a revelation uh, to learn that uh, some people just never seem to get enough. I thought I could never get enough, but other people were getting wanted even more. <laughs> and it was kind of a revelation. Another thing I learned was that I'm my best partner. I don't always have somebody with me. I love May, I love the May West quote. If you don't have a good partner, you better have a good hand. You can always count on May West for a, a good quote, can't we? But I was guilty. I felt shame over my masturbation as a as an adolescent because of my religious training. And my parents weren't even particularly strict about that. My my mother came in when I was 12 years old and caught me masturbating one day. Of course, I was just wracked with, with shame that she'd caught me. But she sat down on my bed, patted me on the shoulder and said, that's all right, Daryl, you won't do it when you get married. Now, she was half right and she was half wrong because I did definitely masturbate when I was married. <laughs> so uh, even though I wasn't raised in a highly... Anti-masturbatory environment. I still knew the guilt. I still felt the guilt, and I absorbed it from my church environment. Uh, learn to love yourself is something that took me a while to to understand, because when you're taught over and over again to judge other people for their sexuality, to hate the gays, to fear your own sexual urges and drives, to condemn other people for having too much sex. Oh, by the way, do you guys, Kara, Eric, do you know the definition of a pervert? No. I don't. No. Well, I'm well, going to give mean... it to you. I'm going to give it to you right now. And you can take this to the bank. A pervert is anyone having better or more sex than you are. That's pretty. <laughs> All right. Okay. Well, what Move. if you're standing outside my window or something? <laughs> Uh, okay, don't push me too hard. There. Okay, all right. <laughs> but yeah, you know, it works. It's about eighty yeah, percent right. No, I, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> so the thing is, you are your first sex partner, and you're probably going to be your last sex partner until you can really enjoy your own body. It's going to be hard for you to share your body and interact with somebody. One of my heroes, who just died last November, is Dr. Ruth Westheimer. She was literally a survivor of the Holocaust. This woman was an amazing human being. She, she 
create an entire career teaching women how to get naked in a room, get in a circle, and masturbate. Thousands and thousands of women came to New York City to get in Dr. Westheimer's uh, all-female classes and learn how to masturbate. It was, at, I, I've, I've met many people who learned from her, went to her, went to her seminars, uh, watched her tapes, you know, all sorts of stuff. And the most common theme is learning how to masturbate liberated me. I now can satisfy myself, but more importantly, or just as important, I can tell my partner what I like and we can share. I, I wish there were, I wish I wish we had the same thing going on with male identified people or people who own a penis because I think I think they are they need they need loosening up just as much as uh, as women do. So I'm going to give you a little exercise for those of you who did say, of course anybody can do this. If you said you were felt still felt guilty about masturbating, I'm going to give you a little exercise, and then we're going to move on. But it's a very short thing. I, I want you to intentionally, within the next 24 hours or so, set aside a little time just for yourself. And I want you, especially if you feel guilty about it, I want you to get comfortable, get your toys out, get your porn out, whatever you want to use. And I want you to just masturbate, just enjoy, just touch yourself, touch your penis, touch your clit, put a vibrator in, put a vibrator on, you know, whatever you want to do. And pay attention to the automatic thinking that goes through your head. I shouldn't be doing this. This is wrong. I feel guilty. Oh, it's just shameful. What if somebody saw me? What if somebody found out? I mean, think of all those thoughts that can go through your head that interfere with you just enjoying your body. There's no crime in enjoying your body, unless you're a Christian, of course, in which case it's you're going to give straight to hell, do not pass, go. So that is what we call radical self-acceptance, listening to the automatic thoughts as you enjoy your body. Now, the listening to the automatic thoughts is the first step. The second step is then take a deep breath and let the automatic thoughts move right on. They're not going to go away. You'll hear them again someday, but just listen to them. Pay attention to the automatic thoughts. And the reason I say that is because if you don't pay attention to them, you give them power. If you pay attention, if you put the spotlight on them, it's kind of like you know putting a spotlight at an animal at nighttime. You can see them, and you can do something about them. So it's it's a really good technique. And if don't the, the objective is not to get to orgasm. The objective is to listen to your automatic thoughts as you enjoy your body. Get the automatic thoughts off, and then continue. If you come to orgasm, beautiful. If you don't that's fine too. You're just learning to listen to your automatic thoughts. So that's tip number one from Daryl. We'll get some more here in a minute. I I like this quote from my uh, colleague, Dr. Eric Sprankle, who was formerly our director of psychotherapy project. Uh, Eric, could you read that for us? You bet. Uh, Absence only. If abstinence only programs were truly about health and not about religious indoctrination, Masturbation would be a core competent. Co- uh, masturbation would be a core component of the curriculum. Yep, 
that's and I, I that's partly why I spend so much time talking about masturbation because it should be the core of our lifelong curriculum, no matter whether you um, how you were trained as a child. So you're going to learn to love and accept others as you do this. You're going to learn about your own body, and that's actually going to change some of your automatic thinking about other people. And then the next thing you can do is start figuring out how to negotiate with uh, a, a romantic partner, somebody you want to be, that you are sexually involved with. And you can learn, you can explore your own sexuality without judgment. Something I I think is important, at least, at least I've discovered this in my own life, is that if you're involved sexually with somebody on a regular basis and you talk about it, either talk about before or after. I like to talk after. You know, once we got it all out of the way and we're just sitting there relaxing, sometimes the conversation just flows and we can talk about what we liked and what we didn't like, what we want to do next time, some of our fantasies. And let's just be honest. When we're fucking somebody, we're not necessarily thinking about the body we're fucking. Think about that. <laughs> uh and, but religion says, no, it's wrong if you're not totally engaged with the person you're sexually uh, intimate with at that moment. That's not the way brains work. Our brains go all over the place. And your partner's brain is going all over the place. And there's nothing wrong with it. In fact, what's wrong is to try and put your brain in a cage and not let it go where it wants to go. I mean, if you're a Richard Gere fan and you would love to fuck Richard Gere, then go fuck Richard Gere while you're with your partner. And kind of reminds me of that scene in um, Bull Durham. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie where the Tim Robbins character is having sex with the Susan Sarandon character. And uh, she really wants to be uh, fucking the, what's, what's his name? Uh, the, another character. And so she's, She's in bed and he's, Tim Robbins just going to town and she hollers out, oh, Crash, oh, Crash. Well, Crash wasn't the guy's name. <laughs> and Crash, and, and the, the Tim Robbins character says, stops, he looks at her and he says, you said Crash. She, she looked at him and says, yeah, I did. You said Crash. Of course, that's not who he was. And she says, well, would you rather me be Fucking Crash calling your name or fucking you calling Crash's name. <laughs> I think that's a beautiful lesson in sex and sexuality. Um, just keep that in mind. Your brain is going to wander. Now, that's not to say you shouldn't be in some way engaged with a person. And sometimes there's some things you can do to even more in intensely engage with that person. For example, sharing fantasies. Some of the most amazing sex I have ever had in my life was when I was sharing a fantasy with my partner. And oftentimes a fantasy that neither one of us would ever do. A fantasy was dangerous. You know, let's go, let's go have sex in a balloon while we're flying over something. Uh, you know, or, you know, let's have a threesome or, you know, let's have an orgy. You know, there's all sorts of things I might not do in real life, but we can fantasize about. And this in, this incredible ability to just interact with another human being. It's my brain interacting with your brain. Now we're not 
doing it the traditional way that the religion tells us to. We're doing it the way we want to do it. We are inventing our own sex as we're having sex. So there's lots of distortions that I see coming basically on um, by, by almost like denomination or by religion. I'm just going to share a couple with you here, but I don't, I don't know what religions all of us are from. But what I have noticed in my clinical experience as a psychologist is that different religions, you know, have different emphasis on different aspects of what's wrong about sex. They all think sex is wrong, by the way, but, you know, different emphasis. So we get a Catholic pattern. I could almost, if I had somebody in my office and I said, well, don't tell me what religion you were from. Tell me, tell me your sexual hangups. I could probably predict if they were a Catholic or not. I could do the same thing for an evangelical, uh, Baptist, not quite because they're, they're almost the same as evangelicals oftentimes. Muslims, I, I have, I've seen clear patterns among, especially Muslim men and their, in their sexual, um, the way they think sexually and the fantasies that they've got and the hangups that they've got. So I think every religion kind of has its own take on how to suppress us and repress us sexually. Here's one of them. You've probably heard the Madonna whore complex. It's actually a Catholic male complex. I don't see it in Protestants. I have, I have never seen the Madonna whore uh, notion in a, in a Baptist. I've seen Baptists with a lot of sexual hangups, but not that one. Uh, I'm not going to go into detail about it, but it, just, just Google Madonna whore complex. You'll probably, if you've never heard of it, it's it's totally Catholic shit. So you'll find, you'll learn something new. Uh, evangelical purity culture. Even though Catholics have got some purity components, they aren't, they can't hold a candle to the purity culture stuff that really drills down into the shame part of sex for women and the ownership, the male ownership of women. Now, I'm not saying Catholics don't have some of this, but the evangelicals team seem to take it to a whole new level. And again, if somebody just told me their basic hangups clinically, I could probably say, were you raised, were you raised a Baptist or an evangelical? And they would probably say, yeah, how'd you know? It's, it's that there's the common problems coming out of religions are that apparent if, if, to someone who's watched this often enough. So here's some tips I'm going to give you. I'm, Kara, I'm going to go where you want to go now. Okay. Uh, and that is, let's expand our sexual behavioral repertoire. Let's let's learn more things that we can do. And the first thing I want to tell you is, sex is play. Once you get rid of the notion that sex is serious, and sex is holy, and sex is spiritual, and all that bullshit, then you can start saying, sex is a way for adults to play. Play with each other. Play with each other's bodies. Play with each other's minds. It is a fun thing to do. Sex is fun if you see it as play. My, my, as many of you know, I live out in the country, and we had some dogs come visit us to uh, this weekend, and my dog and their dog just played and played and played and played and played. It was like they couldn't get enough playing with each other. And it reminded, and a lot of it is sexual. I mean, literally, because the male dog would be mounting or trying to sexually you know, interact with, with my dog, who's, who's female. 
and I'm not saying it's all sexual, but there's quite a bit of that. And what I what I want you to to think about is are you are you approaching sex as playful, as something joyful, as something to be shared and explored together? And even if it's not with a partner, you can incorporate aspects of playfulness within sex. You can take a field trip to a porn shop. You can do it alone. You can do it with your partner. And you can go around and look. That video's got something I've never seen before. Why the cover of that? I've never seen that before. Oh, that was repulsive. I mean, you're going to get all sorts of stuff. And then you can talk, by the way, talk to the clerks. The clerks really know how to help you find what's going to make uh, trip your trigger. And especially, especially, and uh, everybody careful, talk to the female clerks. They know what the fuck they're talking about on both sides of the equation. Whether you got a penis or a vagina, I found the female clerks tend to really have, well, they've seen a lot of people come in and they, they tend to listen pretty carefully. The male clerks, I don't think, I think they still got sexual hangups sometimes because they won't talk to you and they won't tell you, you know, what's, you know, what, what might be a good toy to buy and buy a toy. Buy, I don't know if you guys noticed it, but I gave away three vibrators last week. I mailed them off to the winners of our uh, donations that came in a couple of weeks ago. I, um, and oh, and two of the three have been very grateful for those, uh, for those vibrators. I haven't heard back from the third one yet. Um, go to conventions or munches. You can get on, you can get on meetup.com and you can find munches for, uh, swingers groups for BDSM. Now, I don't know if you know what a munch is, but a munch is simply a meeting. It's like, <laughs> like a recovery from religion meeting in a restaurant. <laughs> Nobody takes their clothes off. Nobody gets sexual or anything. It's just you get to meet other people who have similar sexual ideas and interest as you do. And even if you are not into swinging, even if you're not into BDSM, go to one of these meetings or go to several of them and just talk to people. What you will find is a whole universe of people who are totally comfortable with their bodies. And there's every shape and size of people. Don't let anybody tell you that swingers aren't every shape and size because they are. Don't let anybody tell you the same thing about BDSM. They're, every shape and size of person, every personality. And oh, by the way, every religion is in there too. I can't tell you how many crosses, people wearing crosses I have seen at BDSM conventions. <laughs> what the hell is a Baptist doing here? Well, because somehow they can separate their Baptist from their kink. That must be what's going on. So those are some more tips of how to get over your inhibitions is talk to other people, listen to their experience you do not have to do anything you don't want to. What you're doing is understanding other people. And you may want to try something, you may not. But at least you will not be judgmental. You are challenging your automatic thinking about your own sexuality. And you're challenging your automatic thinking about other people's sexuality. You might also go to bars. Bars where people are, you know, trying to date each other. Or go to a gay bar. Go to, go to places where you're going to be challenged about your own sexuality. <clears throat> Another key component, I wish I, I could do a whole talk on this, I'm not. And that is that when we have sex, we're triggering, we're triggering hormones in our body. Primarily oxytocin 
and vasopressin. Uh, there, these are called the bonding, the bonding uh, hormones. I don't have time to talk about that tonight. I'm not going to spend much time. But if you're somebody who just easily falls in love with with other people, it's possible that your brain creates more oxytocin than the average person, because oxytocin is the bonding hormone. So once you understand that, wow, my emotions just go crazy when I find somebody I want to have sex with, understand you're creating a drug that is very addictive. It's almost like cocaine. In fact, some of the receptors in our brains look the same for those things. So some people need to be more careful about how they express their sexuality because they lose control of their emotions too easily. And I, I don't mean the word too easily in a pejorative or a negative way. I'm just saying, be aware. You know, if you're a, if, if you are, for example, if you're somebody who's not particularly coordinated, uh, athletically, you're going to be a little more careful handling dangerous instruments. You know, if you're not very good with a knife and you're a cook, you're going to be more careful with that instrument. Well, that's all I'm saying here. Be careful with how you express your sexuality. If you, if you find your emotions get out of control easily. That's true for men as well. Vasopressin is the male hormone. Oxytocin is the female hormone. Now both, both sexes generate both hormones, but they do it in different, at different amounts and to different degrees. Um, I mean, women produce a lot of oxytocin around nursing, for example. Uh, and they they bond with oxy, oxytocin to their baby. The same the same hormone is used to bond to your to your mate, your sexual partner. And vasopressin is the same thing. Vasopressin is coming out to bond between the on the male side to the female and to the baby to the, the offspring. Doctor Ray, uh, yeah. The uh, what is the male hormone? Uh, vasopressin. Oh, vasopressin. Do you have any idea why males and females wouldn't use the same hormone to, 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 to does it have different effects? Yeah. Oxytocin is pretty powerful and it, it's much more, it's more functional in, on the female side for uh, bonding with the, with the infant and nurse nursing. Oxytocin is what is expressed when, uh, when a woman wants to nurse a baby. And the baby's suckling on the on the nipple um, stimulates oxytocin. So two things happen: it releases the milk, it allows the milk to come down, and it makes bond it bonds the mother with the baby. I mean, there's actually experiments with animals. If you block oxytocin with a baby uh, with a mother a rat or, or other mammal. If you block the oxytocin, the mother can't bond or won't bond with her own infants. She will leave them. She won't nurse them. She will lose interest in them. They're just another object in their environment. So oxytocin is pretty damn important to the human species and to the male, uh, uh, females of, of the, of the mammalian, uh, um, group. Vasopressin is not as powerful and you know, we, we're not having babies. It's a very closely related, uh, vasopressin and oxytocin are very closely related hormonally, and they tend to interact with the same places in the brain. Uh, 
but men don't bond as strongly, generally speaking, and I'm being, I'm generalizing here, and they don't bond with the, with offspring as strongly. I mean, because think about it. If I'm a woman nursing my baby every day and that oxytocin is coming out, I'm, I'm really creating a bonding environment for that, for that infant. As a male, I'm not nursing. So I'm not getting that constant stimulation for bonding. So you're getting some real difference there in the, in the two. There's other reasons for this. Eric, it's, um, there's a lot of biology. I'm just throwing out the window right now. I'm just trying to get through my talk. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I appreciate yeah, that. Thank yeah. You. The last thing is in this whole bonding and oxytocin vasopressin thing is that the, the research and the research goes back quite a ways, 20, 30 years now. We know that the stimulation of bonding hormones tends to decrease about four years. And uh, Helen Fisher, um, anthropologist years and years ago, I, I've actually got her book here on my shelf, discovered that the highest divorce rate is about four or five years. And what she noticed is in, in, in non-Western tribes, in hunter-gatherer tribes, the child is weaned by four or five years old. And the, the, the woman is ready to have another baby. So there's no, the, the baby is self-supporting. We've got a village around us, another tribe. We don't need men that much. Many hunter-gatherer tribes, and the Hadza being one of them, the women basically change, change husbands every four to eight years. You know, they have one baby and kick the guy out. And for a few years, they got another baby by another man for another four years. Uh, this whole notion of marriage, by the way, doesn't seem to, hold up in some tribes like the Hadza or the, or the Na tribe in China. They don't even have a word for marriage because there's no such thing in their culture. So for, what happens is we get satiated. Our bond, we're no longer stimulating the bonding hormone in our, in our brains. So we're less and less bonded. So what that means is if you want to stay involved, you're going to have to do something to stimulate the bonding hormone. And we can do that. We're humans. We can make decisions to be intentional about our sex lives. And if you do that, if you create intentionality about it, you can intentionally stimulate the bonding hormone for, for yourself and your partners and uh, stay together for decades. You don't have to get satiated. When I mean satiated, take your finger, anybody can do this, take your finger and just rub it on, your, on the back of your hand. And rub it for about 60 seconds. What starts happening? You lose all feeling. You have overstimulated the nerve endings there. They no longer feel. You have become satiated. Those nerve endings are satiated. And that's what happens to humans sexually. After about four or five years, we get satiated with our current partner. And that's why divorce seems to be so high about four or five years, because one or the other partner says, hey, this sex stuff ain't near as much fun as it used to be. I'm going to go find somebody else or, or somebody does, if they're a Christian, they'll after four or five years of, you know, being with one person, they say, well, I'm going to get some new, new sexual stimulation. I'm going to go watch some porn because quite frankly, porn watching is a way for me to stimulate my, my um, um, need for variety sexually. And by the way, it's actually something we recommend in therapy. Porn actually helps you create that bonding hormone with your partner. 
you can watch porn together. You can enact porn together. You can make a porn movie together. And there's all sorts of things you can do to stimulate these hormones. And I'm really, really oversimplifying stuff here. And I'm really not interested in making this a therapeutic session. But I, I just wanted to emphasize most people have never even heard of the word satiation and they do not re realize that they themselves are going to be satiated. You don't want to have beef every meal for the rest of your life. You don't want to have macaroni and cheese every meal for the rest of your life. And why will you want to have sex with the same person in the same way the rest of your life? You know, mix it up. Get some new stuff coming in your relationship. Watch some porn together. Go visit a porn shop together. Share fantasies together. There's all sorts of ways to stimulate the hormones that keep us engaged with each other. I'm going to also, Ray, yeah. You know, if, if um, in school or if my parents had like told me about this whole satiate, 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 this whole numbing effect that yeah. you feel. Right. Um, if, if they had told me about that before I got married, um, that might have gone far to kind of help me understand perhaps some of my own feelings. I had yep. never heard this until just now. And not only that, but you also seem to provide like, hey, you can control this. You can do something about it if you want. Yeah, exactly. Right. And that's what, that's what a psychotherapist is going to do if you're doing marriage counseling. They're going to teach you these concepts. Well, if they're a good therapist, they'll teach you these. They're a Christian. They won't. <laughs> But what, if if you buy into this notion that we're a monogamous species and we're intended to be married for life, there's absolutely no evidence for that. None whatsoever. That is a Christian concept. Even the Muslims don't believe that because you can have four wives as a Muslim. I mean, think about all the other religions that allow multiple partners, mostly patriarchal, you know, dominating multiple wives. But the fact is, Humans are not monogamous. We've never been monogamous. It, there's no evidence for monogamy. That doesn't mean some people don't stay married for long periods of time. But even people who say they're monogamous probably had a sex partner or two before they got married, which means they weren't monogamous. Because by the definition of Jesus himself, monogamy is one sex partner for your fucking entire life, period. That's monogamy. Uh, it's like the anglerfish, the male anglerfish comes up to the female and embeds himself in the side of the female anglerfish. Female anglerfish is very large. The male anglerfish is very tiny. He embeds himself in her skin and then promptly loses his body and all the testes are left. That's monogamy. <laughs> now, more importantly, I, I was at the end of a talk. I gave this, I said this about the anglerfish and <laughs> And a woman came up to me at the end of the talk and she said, you know, that anglerfish thing, you that sounds a lot like my ex-husband. <laughs> so, yeah, we are not very we're not very good at being monogamous, but we can be good at negotiating relationships and maintaining them for long periods of time. Get rid of the notion that we have to be married for 50 years. Hell, nobody even lived 50 years, 150 years ago. I mean, the average lifespan was something like 36. So if you're a 50-year-old, you were ancient. And you, you, you probably weren't even, um, you know, you were on your deathbed practically at 50 years old. So some more tips. There are some, there are some things called checklists. And I see them 
uh, one, I, I'm, I've got the website right here. It's called Ask for What You Want. It's a vanilla checklist. And when I say vanilla, I mean it's people who <laughs> don't want to get too adventurous. They're not into whips and chains. You know, they're not going to be kinky. But there's still a checklist. You can go online with your partner. You can fill the checklist out. And then you can do a radical fucking crazy thing. You can talk to each other about it. What you like, what you don't like, what you prefer, what you don't prefer, what they prefer and don't like and do, you know, all that stuff. And when you're finished, you'll have like a Venn diagram. Here's the stuff I like. Here's the stuff you like, but you don't like what I like. And I don't like what you like, but some part of it does overlap. And the part that overlaps, that's where we can create our relationship. That's where we can generate interest. That we generate exploration and creativity and variety. And there's usually enough overlap to make things fun. And more importantly, once you get into that overlap and you start exploring it, you may find that your, your overlap gets bigger and bigger. More and more things overlap. He says, I'm ready to try that. She says, I'm ready to try that. And you get some quid pro quo, some give and take between the partners. I also love the BDSM world. I think the BDSM world, they know what they're, they know what they're doing. They're, the negotiation of safe and sane sex is what BDSM is all about. You can go online, just Google BDSM checklist or look at the one I've got up here. And there's, there, I've, I've used this checklist that had as many as 166 different sexual acts on a scale of one to five. You know, one, I would never do that. A five, I want to do it every night, you know, or it was something like that. And and your partner can do the same thing. And then you can look at the two checklists. You know, I want whips and chains on Thursday night. You want anal sex on Friday night. You know, there's, <laughs> I'm kind of exaggerating here, of course. But there's there's a way to loosen things up by just talking. And what I found is the checklist idea, getting online, printing a checklist off and going through it, really opens up the communication. And what you'll find is you are reticent to even talk about these things until you fill the checklist out. Now, you do not have to show your partner the checklist. At at first, just fill your own checklist out and then be you know careful about what you reveal to each other, especially if you both came out of a Christian background or especially if one of you is still religious and the other was not. These things can work with religious spouses, by the way. All they have to be able to do is understand the importance of some of the concepts I've just talked about. I've done, I've worked with many couples over the years where one was not religious, one was religious, and they were able to negotiate a satisfying sexual relationship. Remember, I told you there's lots of Baptists at the BDSM conventions. Somebody's having good sex in the Baptist world. All right. Do you need therapy? Well, I'm going to give you some tips, and these are not exclusive. It's not a, a full list. But if you see a pattern in your own sexual behavior that interferes with your enjoyment in your relationship, might be something to think about. For example, you maybe I just can't have sex with the lights on because I'm too ashamed of my body. That sounds like a therapist question. I'm afraid of my emotions when I have sex with someone. I lose control. I fall in love too easily. I get I fall in love with the wrong people. That's probably something for you to go talk to a therapist about. When you can't relax and enjoy your own body by yourself. I can't have an orgasm when I masturbate. Again, maybe something to talk to a therapist about. When you get intrusive thoughts, automatic thoughts coming in, especially coming from religious indoctrination. (laughs) 
I'm, I'm always fond of saying if you're married and Christian, you're having a threesome with Jesus. And think about that. He's always watching you. That's pretty, that's pretty fucking perverted. Now there's the definition of a pervert watching you while you're having sex when you don't want them to be. Uh, intrusive thoughts from the indoctrination that the exercise we did earlier and what I've talked about automatic thinking and paying attention. You can do the same thing when you're with your partner and you can pay attention to this intrusive thoughts that are keeping you from enjoying each other. And if you go to a therapist, they're probably going to give you that assignment too, a sex therapist. And oh, by the way, be sure when you get a sex therapist for yourself or as a couple, get an ASEC certified therapist, ASEC, A-S-E-C. They, an ASEC certified therapist has gone through pretty rigorous training to help people with their sexual um, lives. If you've had sexual abuse as a child, if a priest molested you, if you were raped by an elder, if you were berated by, you know, by your religious uncle for catching you masturbating, you know, something like that, that's probably related to trauma. You probably experienced some trauma there. And it's now those intrusive thoughts are there in your mind. A therapist can help you deal with that. And sexual trauma usually comes from some kind of childhood abuse. The religious purity purity culture has created so much trauma among uh, men and women. I see it a lot in women coming out of purity culture because purity culture basically says women are all the problem. You know, they're the temptress, they're the eaves. Rape or assault by religious leaders is incredibly traumatic because you it's someone you trusted, your family trusted, I can't tell you how many times I've heard it from men who are molested by Catholic priests. I not only was betrayed by the Catholic church, I was betrayed by my parents who didn't believe me. That's a double betrayal. And that's really difficult to get over. So, um, you know, that's an area to think about in terms of trauma. Public shaming. Uh, I've had so many examples. Fortunately, not a lot, but I've heard a lot of examples of People being called up in front of their church to be berated by the minister for having gotten pregnant out of uh, wedlock or having had sex and been caught. I've seen this too many times. And I know I know some of you who are on the chat line have heard these same stories from people that they were berated publicly for their sexual behavior. Of course, shaming of the LGBTQ community daily, weekly from the pulpit. That can cause trauma to, uh, you know, a, a gay person. And of course, bullying and teasing by other children can be really devastating and can be life influencing. So here's the deal. This is your life. You can't change the past and you can't change your partner. Please do not hear what I've talked about here today as a way to change your partner. Manipulation is not going to get you a positive good sex life with a partner. If it's not enthusiastic consent, it's probably not worth doing. Don't try it. You're going to just create more problems for your relationship. You can take charge of your own sexuality. You can explore options. And that's that's kind of what we've been all about here tonight. You can learn to ask for what you want. If you've got a partner, learn to ask them, you know, to exchange interests and to do things Learn what the other person likes and enjoy giving them that pleasure. 
and they'll probably enjoy giving you that pleasure too. And you can find a good therapist uh, who can help you with some of these skills. What we've done tonight is is scratch the surface. If I've touched if I've touched any soft spots or any sore points, please let, t- take a minute to examine those. Within the next 24 hours, think about what I've talked about and then decide, is this something I want to work on for myself so I can enjoy my life better? Or is it something I need to find a therapist so I can help uh, enjoy a more fulfilling life? I'm going to skip over these uh, real quick um, because I, I don't have time. <laughs> and I'm going to just tell you this. Sex is fun and so is drinking. So do them both responsibly. And don't be a vector for religion and don't be a vector for sexually transmitted infection. Practice safe sex. Uh, And I am not here to tell people to go out and, you know, have orgies every night. If you want to have an orgy every night, go for it. Uh, Please invite me. I've never seen a place you can have an orgy every night. I'd like to, I'd like to see that. What I am here to say is learn who you are as a sexual being. Learn how to negotiate, learn how to practice, learn how to develop relationships. And whether you're monogamous or polyamorous or any other us, I don't care. You can be asexual, I don't care. That's not the point. The point is be who you are. Don't be who the religion said you are. And I'm going to just tell you, I am not a Christian and I am not about to act like one. So in closing, I will illustrate this with a photograph. Uh, strategically placed, however. All right. I would encourage you to go out and read Sex and God. I will also say, if you're a couple involved with someone else, that the last five chapters of Sex and God, I wrote with couples in mind. I think, you know, if you're in a couple, read the book. Read it separately. But when you get to those last five chapters, go back and read the five chapters again chapter by chapter, because those chapters really challenge you to rethink some of the, some of the uh, uh, ideology that came, uh, sexual ideology came out of your religion. And uh, that is all I got for you tonight. Dr. Ray, thank you so, so much for coming on and talking to us about this. Um, I know I got a lot out of it. Um, Kara, what did, uh, what did you think? Yes, this was fantastic. I always love when you come and talk on this subject, Dr. Ray. I actually just re-listened to the audio version of your uh, Sex and God book the other day, oh. and uh, it's I recommend it as well. It's It's been great for me. I definitely came out of the, the purity culture <laughs> stuff and <laughs> continue to find ways that I'm still working through that or discovering new new thoughts that I'm having or old thoughts that I'm having that I just... Yeah realize are are still affecting me that came out of that so isn't that isn't that interesting you think you're out of it and then these automatic thoughts just keep coming back to you it takes some effort it's not just something that happens because you left religion you really got to think and work on it thanks Kara. i'm glad to hear you re you re-listened to it great (laughs) eating a little bit because i I have the audio book but That's okay. Hey, you know, as an author, we don't care. Just listen to us. Feed <laughs> us. <laughs> well, Dr. Ray, I can tell from the chat that uh, both in, uh, at, over at the Atheist Community of Discord and um, here in Zoom that uh, this, you made a, a, 
you made you impacted a lot of people. I saw comments saying like this now makes total sense and um, uh, just very, very grateful for this talk. And I think it's well needed um, too. Um, and we have got a couple of questions. You got a little bit of time to yep. answer yep. some questions. I'm here? very glad to answer questions and I'm happy to stay quite a while. I may have to go to bed sometime though. All right. Um, the first question is, uh, if you're not, what would, what would be the first uh, starting point? If you're not sexually adventurous, but you wish you were? Well, I would ask the question, are you adventurous in other areas of your life? Um, if you're adventurous, if you're the kind of person that wants to go out and, you know, fly airplanes or jump out of airplanes or climb mountains or that sort of stuff, then you probably got a disposition that's more adventurous. And your lack of adventure in the sexual area may be more related to your religion. However, if you're not particularly adventurous in your everyday civilian life, you know, you you really don't want to climb any mountains. <laughs> you're certainly not going to jump out of an airplane. Uh, and you just are pretty, you know, what what's adventurous to you is to go watch a movie. Then I wouldn't push it. You're probably not, you're probably not uh, predisposed to high adventure. Now, that all that said is I think most of us, because of a repressed culture and our religious upbringing are probably we're probably pushed into the repressed and non-adventurous area kind of like that tree that i showed you early on it, it was pushed and i think a lot of us were pushing that way so i would say start with something that's interesting not dangerous not not so far out you could get traumatized by it or anything but you know have you something really small pull up some porn on the internet and 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 watch it if you've never done it or porn up pull up a certain kind of porn you've never looked at but you've been interested in or talk to your partner and say i'm exploring this part of my sexuality would you go there with me so you feel safe you've got a hand to hold and then you can say let's watch this particular porn together and we're not going to do anything about it i don't want to do anal sex but i'm curious about it for example and and you just go slow, go one step at a time, talk about it and feel, just feel the support of your partner and give your support to your partner. I think another thing is to get to, to um, allow your partner, give your partner permission within the relationship for them to be a little bit more adventurous. And that may stimulate your adventure. If you're a partner person, if you've got somebody you're with, the two of you can, can work together towards something that makes a lot more makes sex and life a lot more interesting. I don't, I hope that answers the question a little bit. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it does. Yeah, that sounded good. Um, and we have several, we've got lots of questions on this topic. Um, another one that uh, came up a lot in the chat was uh, people talking about struggling with intimacy because of a feeling of, of men owning their body. I think this was particularly um, havers of vaginas, uh, that we're talking about this. Uh, and one of the questions was, where do you think I could start to work through this feeling? Uh, well, I, one of the reasons I mentioned Dr. Uh, Ruth Westerheimer is she, that's an area she really uh, specialized in. And that is liberating women from patriarchal notions about sex and sexuality, which includes ownership. You know, women 
women, wives and daughters being owned by males, uh, which has been the cultural past and still is in some ways. So I would recommend going and watching some of Dr. Ruth. She went by Dr. Ruth. Everybody called her that. Go watch some of her stuff. Read some of her material. It's really will help liberate because I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I don't possess a vagina. I've got a penis and I was raised in this male dominated patriarchal culture and I've still got issues. I'm not, I'm not going to, I have automatic thinking that I have to be aware of. I mean, just because I have struggled and succeeded in getting rid of a lot of the effects of the automatic thinking, it doesn't mean I still don't have it. We all, we'll, I will probably go to my grave with some of the automatic thinking, but I, I've learned not to pay attention to it. I've learned to put it aside. I've learned to say, well, that's not the way the world really is. There's ways to get around that. Well, the same thing you have to do as a female. If you own a vagina, you need you need to be aware of the automatic thinking that you were that was beaten into your head as a child. That girls can't. I mean, many many people have overcome that in some areas. I mean, we've got we've got female. Um, aerospace engineers that didn't exist in not NASA 30 years ago. We got people that are doing amazing things in areas that were not even permitted to go. And so they must have been doing something to overcome the automatic thinking. We're just taking that same automatic thinking that's being focused on careers and bringing it into sexuality. You know, I'm so... I can't I can't answer the question any better than that without probably getting into a therapeutic mode, which I'm not going to do tonight. <laughs> uh, we, the next question we've got a lot of questions. I'm probably gonna, we're probably going to have to just uh, cut a few of these out and hold them over to uh, the social hour. Okay. Um, would you say that religion emotionally and sexually stunts your growth? I feel as if I'm constantly so behind and almost childlike in some ways, sexually and emotionally? Um, yes. The answer is a unfortunately resounding yes. Religion infantilizes people. It tries to keep you within very narrow confines, and it forces you to miss developmental stages. Remember that um, slide I had real early on in my talk that talked about, you know, while you were uh, – you know, while other people were dating, you were in a Bible class. Well, all that was meant, that slide was meant is to, is to illustrate that that was a developmental phase you were not going through or you were being held back or repressed from. Um, I'll tell you the story. This, this, this was a profound, absolutely profound experience for me, clinically speaking. I was a clinical psychologist practicing. This is long time ago, it was back in the 1980s, late 80s. And I had, uh, I don't know what it was. I'm so, I, I was out of religion, but I wasn't a widely known atheist or anything like that. So I, I kept getting ministers. I kept getting priests contacting me for therapy. And, I, and they were almost always long ways away. One time, one day, I got a call from a Catholic priest that was over 100 miles away. And he, he wanted to set an appointment. So he came to my office. We did about three sessions. And during that time, I learned that he had a quote porn addiction. Well, golly, you know, I've got a porn addiction too. So what am I going to do about this? 
anyway, after the end of three sessions, I basically said, look, uh, you sound to me like a perfectly normal 13-year-old boy. And we started talking. We started exploring that. And that was when he committed to being a priest when he was 13. In other words, his sexual development stopped at 13. Now, the reason this is important is because it happened twice to me. I had a second priest a year later, and he was from the same diocese. So word had gotten out. Daryl Daryl can cancel you on this. Why is this important? Because as you're aging, your brain, our brains are really different than a than an insect or even a dog's. If I went outside right my house right now, I would hear Katie Dids just yelling and screaming. Because every one of those Katie Dids is trying to get laid tonight. Because if they don't get laid now, they're never going to get laid. It's like a once-in-a-lifetime thing. Insects don't mate every night. They can't have sex every night. Humans can. So they're going to die without passing their genes along. Dogs are kind of the same way. Dogs only mate when they're in heat, when the female is receptive. So humans, all that is genetically programmed. There's no time for that locust outside my window to learn how to have sex. And there's really no time for a dog. Where does a dog learn to have sex? I mean, is there a dog sex class anywhere? I've never seen that. So it must be genetically programmed. There's no learning going on. However, with primates, and, and that's including us and all the great apes, there's a lot of learning goes on within sex. And here's the way it works. Inside our brain is a framework, a genetic framework for sex, but it's just a framework. I know, Eric, you're a builder. You know how to put wood together into a house and stuff. What it is, is like framing the house and then stopping. Your brain is framed by the age of uh, eight or 10 years old. It's framed for sex, but now it's got to find out what is the appropriate sex for my culture at this time. Think about it. If you took a 21st century sexual attitudes and went back to England in the 14th century, you'd be pretty out of place. <laughs> well, that's it's the same. Almost, uh, it almost seems like uh, houses that were built in the fifties and never were remodeled or updated or anything like that compared to yeah. you know, houses that were continually updated and yeah. upgraded. So as a human species and as primates, we have the framework, but then we have to fill in the frame. We have to put the walls, the roof, you know, the windows into our sexual framework as we grow. And that's what's happening when you're 12, 13, 14, 15, and you're learning how to interact with somebody else in different ways sexually. And if you're, if, as this priest was, if you're stopped at 13, you're sent off to an all boys priest training school and you, you're there until you graduate from, from college, basically. And now you're set out into the real world you're still a 13-year-old, mentally speaking. You never had the opportunity. Now, if you think about who are Catholic priests, who's, who's the target most often of Catholic priests for, for pederasty, for molesting? Is it girls or boys? It's boys is what we mostly hear about. Exactly. And that's, and it's not just because. Mm. Oh, okay. Yeah. Their brains were trying to fill in the blanks. 
And they're sent off to, they're almost all sent off at 13 or 14 years of age to an all boys Catholic school. Their brains are looking around and saying, what is the appropriate sexual target for me in my culture right now? And all they see is boys. So they're stuck as 13 year old boys are the sexual targets for their brain. They are fucking programmed by the Catholic church. The systemic abuse of Catholic priests creates the systemic abuse of the people in the Catholic church that we've seen. The evidence for this is I could, I could literally do an entire talk about the way the brain works in this, in this situation, but there's so much evidence that the brain is being stifled by religious ideas. Um, and this is just one example. I got to stop there. Cause I got to get some more <laughs> questions here. I, I really have too much fun talking about this shit. <laughs> You might need to write a whole book about it. Oh, wait. Oh, oh, darn. I guess I will. <laughs> start another one. Um, no, this is great. We have so many questions. It looks like we've got time for probably one more before we go to the Hangout. And okay. We can probably get into some others there. Um, but here's one that might be a good one to end on. Um, what is the best way to have an open discussion with a partner about topics such as these? I, uh, well, obviously I'm pretty selfish. I want you to watch my video. Watch this video right here. <laughs> and when you're finished, what do you think about what Daryl says? You know, can we talk about this? That, that'd be one way you could read sex and God. You could go read something Dr. Ruth, uh, did or, you know, in some way, shape or form. You, you can go to a place where other sexualities are on display and just talk about what you see around you. You know, if you're a heterosexual couple, go to a gay bar and just talk to the people there. Um, My gay friends are far more open about their sexuality than than my straight friends are. My straight friends are, I don't know what the fuck they're doing sexually (laughs) compared compared to my gay friends. Uh, So if, I just, I, I am a great admirer of what the LGBTQ community has accomplished in the last 20 years. I think they are the leaders in so many ways that I think hetero people can learn from it. And whether you're hetero or not, I, gay couples can have the same problems that hetero people do. Let's not, let's be serious. Everybody comes through religion is going to have hangups. I mean, I've got the, why the fuck is a gay person still in the Baptist church? Why are, I mean, I know so many organists and so many choir directors in, in Protestant conservative churches that are LGBTQ. Why, why? But um, that's another question here. It sounds um, like uh, from what your talk was just maybe mutually filling out a separate checklist um and kind of comparing notes might be a yeah like a a sweaty nervous uh exercise but a good start absolutely i mean what you're doing is you're you're depersonalizing the issue and objectifying the issue you're putting on a piece of paper you're now a check mark it's not a it's not a judgment of me it's a check mark and and you don't even have to share it you can only share what you want to share. And I'm serious about that. People need to have a right to their own privacy. Now, 
in the BDSM world, I won't, I, I want to know everything. And, and we work in the BDSM world, we're pretty open to begin with. So this whole not sharing is something only monogamous people will probably do. You know, they can't talk. I, I, I fucking think monogamous married people are so stuck in the, in the Christian version of sex and sexuality that they have a real hard time talking about this stuff, Kara, in, in terms of that question you asked. So they, they need to step outside of themselves and talk to other people who, who've already been there. And I think LGBTQ people know what they're doing uh, much more than heteromonogamous people. So there you go. Um, I'm not making any, yeah, I am making a judgment. <laughs> I, I, it's, it's a pattern. I, I, I'm not going to say it's everybody, but it's a pattern I see. Um, you know, it, people are satiated after 20 years of being married to somebody and they don't know what to do with it. And what they do is they turn that anger in on themselves or they turn that anger in on their relationship and they're fucking miserable. My two grandparents, both, both sets of my grandparents were married for over 50 years. And I don't know four more miserable people on this planet than my four grandparents. And they hated each other in, in various ways. And I look back and say, you haven't gotten any, you know, I haven't gotten laid in 40 years. So, so you're probably pretty miserable. I'm just thinking. So. Yeah. All right, Kara, we've got all the questions. Well, yeah, uh, there are plenty more, um, but I think we can get to those in the hangout session if you're still able to stay and hang out a little bit longer. Yep. Perfect. Well, great. We'll we'll go to that here in just a second then. But thank you so much for giving this talk and chatting with us about all of this. This has been really, really fascinating and enlightening. So I'm definitely glad that we got to spend this time hearing from you about this topic. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Recovering from Religion podcast. If you have questions for either of us or suggestions for future topics, you can email us at podcast at recoveringfromreligion.org. If you think you'd like to be one of our guests, we have a form on the podcast page of the Recovering from Religion website. We'd love to hear from you.